good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's take our Bibles and turn once more to Matthew chapter 6. We'll read together once more the words of our Lord's instruction regarding this matter of prayer. Matthew 6 and the verse number 9. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And again, we look to God for his blessing upon the word. We have noticed that there is uh, two sections, two sections to this uh, model pattern prayer. Uh, there are the first three petitions that have to do with the Godward focus. Thy name, thy will, and thy kingdom. And then what follows are petitions that have to do with, if you like, our concerns, the us-word petitions. And you'll see the us used there, verse 11, give us this day, forgive us, lead us not into temptation. And that division is very, very important. It reminds us again of the importance of rightly prioritizing the things of chief importance in our prayers but if we are to see this pattern prayer as not only containing petitions, but also containing petitions in a proper order, then there is a question that arises. Why are we to pray for our daily bread before the forgiveness of our sins? Furthermore, why is there a connector between these petitions that there hasn't been in others? Forgive or sorry, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And I think if we can answer the and, it may help us to answer the question as to why we pray first for our daily bread. Uh, at this point, I, I, I confess, uh, I confess that I have lent heavily upon the, the work of our brother Dr. Cairns in this regard. His work in the Lord's Prayer is very helpful, and he has, again, very helpfully given some understanding regarding this use of the word and at the beginning of verse number 12. So let me just give you three of his suggestions as to why this connection is here. First of all, he suggests that unforgiven sin hinders prayer and robs us of the ability to get through to God in our petitions. You take a text like Jeremiah chapter 5, your iniquity have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. I will see more of this shortly, but in simple terms, the give of verse 11 will not be heard without the accompanying forgive. 
So if we are to bring our petitions, give us this day our daily bread, that unconfessed and unrepentant sin will hinder the answer to that petition. The second thing he suggests is this, that is that the joining of these two petitions shows us our unworthiness to receive God's gift. When we pray, forgive us our debts, after give us this day our daily bread, it is a reminder to us that we don't deserve even our daily bread. When we're told to pray, forgive, it has the purpose of reminding us that God's gifts are totally unmerited and totally undeserved. Genesis 3.2, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies of God. Nothing. We deserve nothing, not even the least, not even a a tiny morsel of daily bread. It's not deserved. And so there is this connection that is seen. The third issue he he, he gives us is also very, very helpful. And he suggests that without God's pardon, temporal blessings do little good. Dr. Cairns illustrates it with the picture of a criminal awaiting execution. And they're given the choice of a last meal. What use is that last meal to them? And the point is that all the gain, all the money, all the property we may uh, occur in this life is worth nothing if you die out of Christ. If you gain the whole world but lose your soul, if give us this day or daily bread is answered, but you haven't prayed for give us our debts, what's the point of it all? Naked we come into the world and naked we leave it. Zephaniah 1 says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. So there is some reason behind this connection. But with that in mind, the petition itself is is very simple at, at first look. And forgive us our debts. It is a prayer for forgiveness. Nothing complicated. You all understand that. And forgive us our debts. You'll find those words, forgive, forgive, forgiveness, forgiven, used around a hundred times in the New Testament. And that's not including words like pardon and remission. It's a very dominant theme in the scriptures. But here it comes in the form of a prayer. So what I want to do is I want to uh, just divide the study into two sections tonight. I want to unpack some, uh, if you like, underlying principles that underlie this petition. uh, And then think about a problem. For there is a problem in the text. So to begin with, let's think about these underlying principles. First and foremost, uh, we should encourage ourselves in this prayer by the fact that God is prepared to forgive sins. It's the most obvious thing, but we should not take it for granted. The God of heaven has revealed himself as being a God who is ready and able to forgive. We have a text like Psalm 86, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. What words, what glorious words, that the God thrice holy, triune God, God of absolute pristine perfection, is the God who is ready, ready to forgive. You think of the Psalm 130, that if God was to mark our iniquities, who can stand? But the clarion note of the psalmist, but there is forgiveness with thee. 
Those are glorious words. Glorious words. There is forgiveness with thee. Who is a God like unto thee, Micah 7, that pardoneth iniquity? What an encouragement to pray this prayer. You could find yourself, I trust it never happened, but you could find yourself on death row looking for leniency from the uh, president or whoever else may be able to offer you that. And you understand that if you were to go to them and ask for forgiveness and mercy, there would be no guarantee. But the Bible shows us God's self-revelation that he's a God who is ready to forgive. Secondly, God has also provided for forgiveness. You're well aware of the truths behind this, but look at the words that are used for sin in the context. Debts, verse number 12. Trespasses, verse number 15. These are the things that summarize our sinful condition. Debts are things that are owed. It uses a metaphor for sin or lack of positive obedience, hence our disobedience. The law of God requires our, our positive obedience as well as avoiding transgression. And so we are lacking. We have debts that are owed. And we have trespassed that we have committed. We fall short of God's glory, but we also break God's standard. We, we cross the line. God says, this far, do not cross that line. And we, we cross the line in disobedience. Sin. Sin is not explained here. It's no attempt is there made to prove the presence of sin. It is simply assumed. Mankind, we, we, we know we're guilty of sin. We will do all we can to deny it, but in the darkness of night, as we contemplate our own existence, we understand that we are not what we ought to be. And yet God has provided justly that this forgiveness could indeed occur, the sin that requires punishment, the sin that requires substitution and sacrifice. It is through Christ's blood that the forgiveness of sins comes to us. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Christ's blood is shed for the remission of sins. I turn to he, Acts chapter 13, and just note this very quickly. Acts chapter 13, for the, the Bible that shows us that God is prepared to forgive sin also shows us that God has provided for this forgiveness in the person of Christ. In the sermon of Acts chapter 13, it, it comes to its conclusion in verse number 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, that is through Christ, who died and rose again, through Christ is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. So whilst we see in the character of God our readiness to forgive, his forgiveness is not unjust. And so he forgives sin justly by his own son, paying the penalty for sin, shedding his blood and rising again the third day. It is through this man. That forgiveness of sin, and only through this man, that forgiveness of sin can be enjoyed. So God is prepared to forgive sin. God has provided for forgiveness. In the third place, God has promised to forgive the repentant. Turn back to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 in the verse 19. Of course, we have 
the encouragement in the Old Testament promises of the New Covenant. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. But Acts chapter 3 and the verse 19 says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. There's a promise. If you repent, if you turn from your sin in that hatred for your sin, you turn from your sin to Christ, and there is the promise that your sins will be blotted out. These are, this is one of the pictures that we have in the Bible for the forgiveness of sins. The God who's ready to forgive has provided for forgiveness and promised that forgiveness, has in his word given us these pictures that would encourage us. Sins blotted out. The stain that we sang about in that hymn, the stain that we can't remove, is removed by Christ and by his blood. Just listen to some of these verses. The Psalm 103 in the verse number 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. An absolute distance beyond our measurement is how far our sins are removed from us. Isaiah 44 in the verse number 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Oh, you... You see the clouds in the sky. And as the sun rises, you see the sun burning away the clouds and they are blotted away from the sky. No trace of them anymore. And so it is for our sins that they are entirely removed. Absolute forgiveness. And you think of the words of Micah chapter 7. God will subdue your iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Not into the shallow sea whereby they recur, but into the very depths whereby they're gone and they're gone forevermore. These are the promises of God given to us in these pictures. And so when you understand these underlying principles, what an encouragement there is to pray. Forgive us our debts. For in the Bible we see all the encouragement we need to pray these prayers. Wonderful truths. But they do lead to a problem. This petition is given, I believe, as a directive for believers to pray. And that's where the challenge comes. Those who have been forgiven are those who are to pray for forgiveness. I think from the portion in Luke and also here, we see that the old context of the Sermon on the Mount is not teaching people how to get into the kingdom, but showing what a kingdom citizen looks like and lives like. And so this petition is given to us in the context of instruction given to the disciples of Christ. And so what are we to make of this? When you think about the absoluteness of forgiveness, and furthermore, forgiveness is one half of the blessing of justification. God forgives our debts and imputes Christ's righteousness to us. And if justification is a once and for all act, so our forgiveness has that once and for all legal dimension to us. It's never presented. Justification is never presented as something to be repeated. Our assurance is that we stand complete in him. 
So, so what are we to make of this? How do, we, how do we understand this? Well, if you allow me to leave aside the resolution for a moment or two, there are some things that are very, very clear. Things that I trust will ring bells in your mind. It is true that in the true Christian sin no longer reigns. Remember Romans chapter 5 and the verse number 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. Romans chapter 6 verse 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now, we've studied this, the, the radical break that occurs with sin when someone comes to Christ. That sin no longer reigns over them. However, in the true Christian, sin, of course, remains. We've seen this in Romans chapter 7. We can think, think about how in Hebrews chapter 12, the believers are warned that sin can so easily beset the child of God. David, Psalm 51, a prayer for repentance is a prayer of a saved man. Restore unto me the joy of thy, or thy, my salvation. Not give me that, but restore it to me, a saved man, praying a prayer of repentance. Isaiah, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The more spiritual a man is, the more aware he is of his sin. We must always flee from the false idea of sinless perfection. Oh yes, we understand that true maturity makes us more like Christ. But as we are made more like Christ, there's a clearer awareness in our hearts of how unlike Christ we are. The more like Christ we become, the more aware we are we're not like Christ. And so in the true Christian, there's a, a break from sin. There's a, a radical, a radical break from sin. It does not reign, but it does still remain. Isaiah, John, others, in the immediate presence of God, they melt in their hearts and they confess their sins. And so we find in the Word of God that true Christians confess their sins and ask for pardon. Said already, Psalm 51, David is a truly converted man. And yet that same man prays, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. But especially, 1 John chapter 1, turn there please. 1 John chapter 1. And in 1 John chapter 1, we have, again, the clearest evidence of the instruction given to true believers that they are to confess their sins. Verse number 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And who's the us here? It is those who profess faith. Verse number six, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do know the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You can't understand this any other way. The understanding that those who truly walk in the light are also those who truly must say that we have sinned. 
They can't say no sin. They must confess that they have sin. And thus, they are told to confess their sins. We are told to confess our sins with the encouragement that as the children of God, the God of faithfulness and justice will indeed forgive us our sins. Christ has died. God is ready to forgive so that those who come to God through Christ have the assurance that he will be faithful and just to forgive their sins. So, Sin cannot mar the believer's justification. That is a once and for all act. It cannot mar the believer's justification. But that does not mean that sin is not an issue for the believer. And we assert with all our hearts the finality of our justification. You can't be more justified. But at the same time, we understand the importance of dealing with sin in the heart of a true child of God. And so sin, we should see, has the impact of hindering our fellowship with God. Verse number 6 shows that we should not walk in darkness and presume we have fellowship with God. There is, there is the importance of Again, keeping short accounts with God and dealing with our sin so that our fellowship with God is not hindered. It is sin, of course, that grieves the Holy Spirit. He is the mediator of our fellowship. We fellowship with God through the work of the Spirit of God. And so we're told, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the haters, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You grieve the Spirit, the mediator of your fellowship, when you engage in sin. And so sin is an obstacle to heard prayers. Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It doesn't say, if I commit iniquity, the Lord will not hear me. We sin in thought, word, and deed every day. But the regarding of it is taking that iniquity and treasuring it as something that is dearly loved. Something you're not willing to give up. It's like holding a, a newborn child and treasuring that newborn child and not being willing to give it up. And so it is for sin sometimes. We, we treasure that sin. And if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear me. Sometimes we have the sense of heaven as brass because the truth is we are treasuring sin in our hearts. There is one very clear example of this in the New Testament scriptures is 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, there is the instruction given to the husbands regarding their wives. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. It's remarkable that the home life could have an impact upon our access to God. And that our prayer life will be hindered if we do not rightly attend to the proper rules within a God-honoring home. So it's here. Sin pollutes our conscience. It hinders our boldness. We are to come with boldness, having a 
clean conscience. And as our conscience is marred by sin, so then our prayers are hindered. Sin robs us of our fellowship with God. It robs us of our part and service. And the psalmist would say, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach sin transgressions thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. There you have it. There's another example of this matter whereby if we, if we treasure sin, it has an impact upon us. The psalmist understands that he needs a clean conscience if he's going to teach transgressors their ways of God. And so the advice from this petition is very, very clear. Forgive us our debts. We are to keep short accounts with God. It's worth noting that a reluctance to acknowledge sin and confess sin may well be a sign that the individual is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit that we pray at any times. And if we won't recognize our debts and recognize our transgressions, it may well be that we do not have the Holy Spirit within us. You see, this reality of justification and yet forgiveness is illustrated in John chapter 13 in the washing of the disciples' feet. That those who are washed all over need not see if to wash their feet. And so there is the continual need for forgiveness as part of our fellowship with God and as part of our sanctification. Though that does not remove the blessing of our justification. Now I understand that some of these things are uh, they're not always easy to, to tie together and understand in a very succinct fashion. But the Bible teaches that when we come to Christ our sins are forgiven past, present and future. And yet it also teaches an aspect of our sanctification that we recognize our ongoing remaining sin and we do not take that lightly but we take it to God and we claim afresh the finished work of Christ on our behalf. So when verse 12 says, forgive us our debts, make sure we don't change the words. Forgive them their debts. But first and foremost, make sure that you understand this. As something you've got to pray for yourself and I've got to pray for myself with the confidence that God is ready to forgive. He's provided for that forgiveness and he's promised to forgive. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.